You guys know I have a little grandson named Cohen. He, he's a little guy. He's about four, but he's about three and a half. He was really troubled one night. He was just really sad. And so his mom followed him into his bedroom, and he laid down, and she said, What's wrong, Cohen? And he said, I, I have some things that bother me. I don't know my numbers yet. And I... Sometimes I get busy when I'm playing and I wet my pants. And um, my sister makes me mad. And sometimes I yell at her and it makes me feel bad. I don't know what to do. Like, well, I, I, I heard that story. I thought, you know, that, that's interesting because I'm still not very good at math. Right now the bladder thing is okay, but I don't know how long that's gonna last. Uh, my sister is, is pretty nice. She's a pastor's wife, but she, she lives a long way away. It doesn't really make me mad that much anymore. But, I, but I, are you like me? I still, when I lay down at night, I have a list of things that, that trouble me. What, what, what would you tell Cohen about his personal troubles there, his, his sense of weakness? Uh, what, what, should, what should mom tell him? What should she tell him? Oh, don't worry about it. You know, you're going to be okay, or it's okay to hit your sister. Don't worry about that. Of course not. What, what should she tell him? I, I've thought about that a lot. What do you tell yourself when you're laying in bed at night? And you kind of have a little list of troubles, and you have a sense you need some things that need to change, but they're really stubborn, and it's really hard uh, to change. I, might, I might, might be going to shock you here a little bit, but I think what Cohen needs is he needs an epiphany. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's kind of like sending a unicorn. I don't understand. <laughs> and you might be tempted to dismiss me right now. But take your Bible, open it up. I want to show you something powerful, something transformational, something that would really help you when you lay down in bed at night and, you're, and you have a nagging sense of stuff that needs to be different, but it's really hard to change. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus 2. 11 through 15, and it will bring you to the middle of a thought, you know, that this has been talking about all the different characters in a church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, pastors, workers, if you will, or slaves. And, and, and he's just got done writing that if you are in a slave and first century slave, then don't steal from your master and, and work hard. And, you know, by all means, live in such a way that you um, give, it says here in verse 10, so that you adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Have you ever been to a buffet? I try to stay away from buffets. They're really not good for me. But every once in a while, we'll go down to the Ohio Amish country and we'll go to this buffet. And then they try to get you to eat salad before, they, before you eat roast beef and chicken. I'm like, I am not falling for that. I did not come here to get me a good salad. 
I just skipped the whole salad line. I let all the skinny people stand in the salad line. I'm like, you go ahead, knock yourself out there. And I go right for the main course. Well, I know the analogy is weak, but when I read this text, did you kind of feel like we're standing right at the roast beef right now? This is, this is the heart of the theology of this book right here. This is one of the peaks, if you will. We've kind of climbed to a, a mountain peak. Paul here is writing to Titus, and he opens his heart, and out comes this powerful, rich, theologically powerful, laden truth. The grace of God has appeared. In the, in the New Testament Greek language, the word appeared is the Greek word epiphany. And the way the arrangement of the New Testament Greek is, it's the first word that you read. It starts with an epiphany. An, an epiphany is a word that was borrowed for like, when the sun comes up and the world is light, the grace of God has dawned on the world. And when the grace of God dawns on the world, things happen. And when the grace of God dawns on you it's transformational that was the big idea right there if you want to write that down you can stop listening the big idea when the grace of god dawns on your soul it transforms you and keeps transforming you it's a powerful thing to have an epiphany an enlightenment an understanding a spiritual understanding of this, that God is good and what it means that God pours his gifts. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Five different things that happen when the grace of God dawns on your soul. Or you could say, this is what you should be thinking about when you're laying at bed at night and you are really troubled about the things that bother you. Grace appears. To understand this, before we study here in Titus, I'd like you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in your Bible. Take your Bible, please turn to 1, uh, sorry, I always do this, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, chapter 3. I'm just going to read chapter 3 with some commentary and chapter 4 because it helps us to understand what the dawning of grace means. Like, what does this language mean? That the grace of God has appeared like the dawn or the spiritual sunrise, or like Peter said, the day star rises in your heart. What does that mean anyway? The, a knowledge and understanding of God's gracious work in the world, which he accomplished, which, he, which was anticipated in the Old Testament and accomplished in Christ, it, 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 it dawned on the world when Jesus came and what was a mystery before became clear about his plan to redeem. This is what it means when it says when God's grace appeared. You could almost say when Jesus appeared. You could almost say that when Jesus appeared. And the word grace, charis word means gift. The idea is that God is generous with his spiritual giftings, with his giving. He gives us all kinds of things. We're going to see this all throughout our life, past, present, and future. But to see how that looks, we might look back here in 2 Corinthians. And, and I'm going to describe what I'm going to read to you. Then I'm going to read it talk about it a little bit more. Here you have Paul in another letter. And he's describing the, the comparison of the law, which is expressed in the Old Testament primarily, with, with, with what he calls the, 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 the spirit, which is his word there for when the full story of Jesus is revealed and people have more than just the law, but they have the full story of Jesus in his, his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. He says, the law has a glory or an ability to express who God is. Glory is an expression of who God is in that way. But he says, but the spirit, or in this case would be, but grace would be the use, word he uses in Titus, or Christ, when he appears, is a greater 
light, a greater glory, a transformational knowledge, understanding, light, day star dawning in your heart, epiphany is what he's saying. So when I read it, you'll notice that's what he's doing. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, he's, he's saying, we don't commend ourselves to you. Um, he says, um, our confidence is in the Lord. And now verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, does it sound like the Ten Commandments, right? Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Are you getting this? So in other words, when God revealed himself through the law, it had a glory that was so great, Moses had to cover his face. It was a powerful, transformational, brightness, glory that was literally physically on Moses, but it's referred to here spiritually. And he says that had a glory, but that's passing away. The work of the law doing its work, and then, this, then God comes, Jesus comes in the person of Christ, not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law and to bring the full message of salvation by grace through faith, which the law sets us up for. Get it? If you're in the bank and you're just like getting ready to cash your check, and then all of a sudden I come running in and I grab you roughly, almost like break your arm, and drag you out into the street, you're going to be angry with me unless I tell you, no, no, you don't understand. There was a bomb going off. I just saved your life. Then you're going to say, thank you for breaking my arm and saving my life, you know. If you don't realize that you are condemned then the gospel isn't really very sweet to you at all. Somebody says, you're forgiven. You're like, I'm not even guilty. Like, okay, now we have a problem. So the Old Testament, in the severe mercy of God, condemns us so that we all know that the bomb is about to go off and we're ready for our rescue. And then the Savior comes, the conquering Savior, the Braveheart, Jesus, rides in and saves us. So that light is greater than the light of the law. The, law, the, the light of the law is great, but the light of the gospel is even greater. That's what he's saying, right? So then he goes on, he says it in different ways. He goes on in verse uh, number 9, and he says, For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had a glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory since we have such a hope. We are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because they, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the, beholding, uh, it, um, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Are you tracking with all of that? Simply said, when you see the law, you see God in his glory. But when you see the gospel, you even see a more resplendent glory 
And when you stare at that in the gaze of the soul and worship and adoration, the deepest part of you loves that. And when it dawns on you, when you have an epiphany of that, when you see it like in your heart, it actually transforms you into gradually into the image of God. It makes you like him. This is very hopeful. Worship transforms us. Cohen needs an epiphany. You need an epiphany. And we need continual epiphanies, uh, enlightenments of who God is, reminders in this dark world of the brilliance of our Lord. In verse, in chapter four, he goes on and says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Isn't that good? I love that. This isn't the point today, but it's a nice little sub point. It's like, I'm not going to get discouraged. I'm packing. I have the gospel and it works, it's powerful. And all I do is like shine it on people. And then God is calling people to himself, they come to him. And, and he says, they, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In other words, we need to play silly circus tricks to get you to be saved. We have the gospel and it has the, the ability to enlighten you to who God is. And he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing or dying and going to hell. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves. Are, we, we are his servants for God. It is God who said, the God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see, this kind of sets up the text now to have a, a, you know, a fuller understanding of the ability of the revelation of God, his, a revelation of his grace, an epiphany of his grace in our soul to transform us. And the stuff that you need to be changed can be changed by God when you have an epiphany of his grace. And in the text today, we're going to notice the five different things that happen. Number one, when the grace of God dawns on you, it will deliver you from sin. When the, that's why it says here, the grace of God has appeared to all men. The grace of God has appeared to all um, self, uh, bringing, uh, appear bringing salvation for all people. The idea is not, you, you've heard the doctrine of universalism, everybody's going to get saved. If you think this passage is teaching that, you're going to run into trouble in verse 14 because he has his own special, unique people that have believed in him. You're going to have run into trouble all over the Bible because there's a heaven in the Bible for those who believe. There's a hell for those who reject and who disbelieve. Universalism is not taught in the Bible. It's just it would be completely inconsistent to, to torque this verse to say into saying that. What this verse is saying is that there is a sense in which that God in his grace has revealed himself to everyone, everywhere. And anyone who does believe will be saved. Now, this is the grace of God has appeared. It's an epiphany bringing salvation uh, for all people. Salvation is, the, is a word for deliverance. You're, you're saved or you're delivered from something. In the, in the Bible sense, in the Pauline sense, he's talking about being delivered from our sin and all that goes with that. The penalty and bondage of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the weight of our sin. You've heard it said like this, I'm sure before, that when we're saved or when we're born again, when we believe, then we're delivered from the penalty of our sin immediately, right? You've heard that, you've been taught that. 
and that we're continuously being delivered then uh, from the power of sin, and that's the sanctification, gradually and continually, and then eventually we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. But it is God's grace that saves us, delivers us. So how does God's grace transform us? It's, it, it transforms us by delivering us from sin. And what is God's grace? The word is gift. It's like the gifts of God. In this particular case, it's God giving us the gift of eternal life and forgiveness and freedom because of our sin. So, this is, this you ha- to be saved, you have to have an enlightenment to believe that's true. The unsaved friends just don't get that. When they do, they'll be saved. You get an enlightenment that the, God, the grace of God has appeared. Yeah, and, and so, it begins with a real understanding of your own guilt, your lack of innocence. And the, the absolute demands of a holy God put together. Which most people, like you listen to the narrative of our culture, the culture is pushing back hard against that all the time. You're innocent. And this, this old book about God is archaic and it's out of date and it needs to be updated or maybe perhaps set aside altogether. But if you really pay attention to that old archaic book, you realize it's the only thing that really makes sense of this world that we're living in right now. People are saying they're innocent. They're not. They, the a prince, uh, a, a high, a high, Spurgeon told a story about a, a, a powerful prince in England that visited the king of Spain. And the king of Spain took him around and showed him different things. One of the things he showed him was one of the uh, ships of the Armada, the Spanish Armada. He said, I'm going to take you on this ship. I'm going to show you all of the glories of the ship. And so the king of Spain was showing this powerful English prince all these things on the ship. And then they went down into the galley where the slaves were chained to the oars and they were rowing because they were prisoners. And he said to him, the king says to the prince, he says, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you the freedom today to set one of these prisoners free. So the king thought that was a serious responsibility. The prince thought that was a serious responsibility. So he began to interview the slaves, the prisoners. Why are you here? Well, I was falsely accused and I was, I was framed. Another one, why well, I'm here, even though I did do wrong, I was convicted wrongly about something that I, I really didn't do. And, and one after another, almost all of them were proclaiming their innocence in one way or the other until finally he got to one who said, I'm here because I'm guilty. I, I did it. I'm so glad I, I could have been killed. I could have been executed, but I got this sentence. He said, I don't think, the, the, the prince says to him, I'm going to set you free because I don't think it's good for you being guilty to be here among all these innocent men. <laughs> if you want the grace of God, the gift of God, the, the primary use of the word grace in the New Testament is about salvation. And to get God's gift, his greatest gift, is deliverance from the penalty of our sin. You have to admit you're a sinner. And that should be really good news for you today. It was good. When I read that again today, this morning when I got up and I was going over the text again, I thought, wait a minute, this is awesome. I qualify. I'm so conscious of my own sinfulness. So my only hope is that God would gift me eternal life. Yeah, I'm going to repeat an illustration because I just want to, but I just can't get over this. I, you know, when Charles Perlos, when he was about to die, I visited him at his home. I think it was the last time I visited him, and he was troubled. And he was working through, you know, things like he would work through before you pass. And, uh, and, and he said, I, I feel a little troubled. And I sensed it was because he was thinking about, you know, that, that wrestling match you have with, have I been good enough? And yet he knew better. I said to him, Charles, are you depending on your righteousness or the righteousness of Christ? And he goes, well, I mean, you know, 
I go, oh, okay, come on. let me say it a different way. I said, if you went up before heaven and he, should, and he said, should I let you in here based on your own good deeds or should I let you in based on the good deeds of Jesus? What would you say? And he goes, well, Jesus, yeah. And I could tell he still wasn't. I then I remembered, hey, Charles, remember how you promised you'd sell me the house? And then I was worried you wouldn't, and I kept asking for the paperwork and the, and the inspections, and I was all nervous about it. And you would always kind of smile. You would laugh at me, and you would say, you got to trust me, man. you got to have faith. I said, and then at the closing, when you laughed at me and you said, I told you, you just needed to chill, man. You needed to trust me. He says, you didn't know me. You didn't know that I'm a man who keeps my word. I said, Charles, do you remember that? When you were standing on the back porch, you said to me, I promise that's what Jesus is saying to you right now. I promise, are you going to trust me? And, he, and it was so sweet because you could just see the light go over his face. And that day when I left and, and I prayed with him, he said, I really feel good. I'm so glad you came by. And I walked to my car. And um, that's what you need. You need to take God at his word and you need to claim his promises as a guilty sinner. Think through your troubles like Cohen, laying in his bed at night, and just take them to the Lord. Yes, you're guilty. That's the only way you get God's gifts is admitting your guilt. So what happens when you have an epiphany of grace? You're saved. You're delivered from sin. Second, when God's grace dawns on you and you have an epiphany of grace, then it will train you to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. This is interesting because we're just not hearing much about this anymore. But look at it. It's still there in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What will happen when grace dawns on you? You'll be saved. You'll be delivered from your sin, the penalty of your sin. Second, when you have an epiphany of grace or when grace dawns on you, you will renounce ungodliness and worldliness. You're, the way you look at the world and your disposition towards sin will completely reorient itself when you see the, that God is good and he gives good gifts and the grace of God will will cause you it will actually the scriptures are teaching here train you and the word here that's used is the training little children word it will it will it will teach you progressively and train you to renounce ungodliness and worldliness what is worldliness the best definition of worldliness is probably the one that's given by john and in first john love not the world the other things that are in the world the things that are in the world the, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life he, so, you know, if the things that, are, so when I ultimately say, when my ultimate thing are temporary things in this world, uh, when my ultimate desires are the, the lust of the flesh, things I can do, the lust of the eyes, things that I want, the pride of life, who I'm becoming, if that's ultimate to me, that's worldly, any of that and all of that and all of its various forms are looking at this, looking at the cosmos, if you will, as if the world was all there was to it. And anything like that is worldliness. And we renounce ungodliness and we renounce worldliness when we have an epiphany of God's grace. When we see the goodness of God, it causes us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldliness. Let me say it real clearly. Scriptures are clear about this. Grace is not a license for you to sin. Grace 
it, one, God gives different gifts, right? He's good at giving gifts. He doesn't just give one kind. He gives all kinds of gifts, the manifold grace of God, many and various different kinds of gifts. One of the gifts he gives is you're, you're gifted with your salvation. You're delivered from the penalty of your sin and going to hell. Another gift would be he helps you to live a godly life, right? So, so I say, hey, I'm under grace, so I can violate God's law. You are completely, you have no biblical justification for that kind of comment, right? Because if you have the grace of God, it's like having Jesus there with you, right? If I, if, what if I were to say, hey, you know, I can do this bad thing because I have Jesus with me. That'd be weird. I have grace, so I can do this bad thing. No, you can't. You have grace, so you don't have to do that bad thing. Grace saves you, and grace gives you the ability to deliver you from ungodliness and from worldliness. The Bible is so very clear about this. And the Bible also teaches, the apostles taught, false teachers are always going to come, and they're going to take the grace of God, and they're going to distort it. They're going to turn it into something else. You see the, the Apple program on your Apple computer that distorts your faith? You ever seen that? Kind of like makes you look really ugly even if you're not. Um, it, get, it gives a weird characterization of who you are. It makes you look fat or skinny or like you have a light bulb head or something like that. Have you seen this? Trust me. Um, anyway, this is what happens to grace. People take grace, which is one of the most beautiful things that ever fell out of heaven. One of the most powerful and beautiful concepts ever given to mankind. And they distort it. And they say, oh, now that you're under grace, you can sin. No. Now that you're under grace, you can keep the law of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8 says. And so when God's grace dawns on you, it will train you to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. Look at your Bible. I didn't make that up. That's, you have an argument about that. You're arguing with Paul. You're arguing with the Holy Spirit. Um, Understand, Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. Yes, you're free from the law in the sense of the condemnation of the law because he's delivered you by keeping the law on the cross and dying and rising again. So he died for us because we deserve to die. And, he gave, and, he, and his good righteous life is, is put on our account, imputed to our account, that doesn't mean, so now we don't have to worry about fulfilling God's law anymore. What it means is now we're not under the condemnation of breaking God's law and we're going to go to heaven when we die and we ought to and we can in the power of the Holy Spirit continuously and progressively more and more keep the law of God. 1 Peter 2.16 says we're free but we don't use liberty as a cloak for vice. Jude 1.4 says certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this, this condemnation, ungodly men that twist or distort or turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, in the church, among Christians, we have two polar opposite problems. They're different kinds of sin. You know, one of them is what we might call a sin called you know, self-indulgent sin. And the other one might be a sin called self-righteous sin. Both of them are sinful and dark Right? If I, if I indulge myself in licentious behavior, in license, you know, then sin. If, 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 however, I think I can keep the law under my own power without the enabling help of the Holy Spirit, that's self-righteousness. And it's a, it's a form of sin. It's, a, it's an especially yucky form of sin, self-righteousness. And, and it has a way of always making its way back 
We, we wrestle between these two. We, we sometimes we do them both on the same day. Self-indulgence, self-righteousness. That's, that's how hypocritical we are. Hypocritical we are. That's how much we need the continual flow of God's gifts to roll into our life, like his gift to help us live a holy life. His gifts, his grace. And, we need to, and, and to get them, we need to see them. Like, oh, I see this guy. I have an epiphany. And then you have um, uh, the, the grace epiphany will transform you. Can I say this before I move on? In our world today, here's what you hear a lot. And you hear this from kind of like people who distort the grace of God who say they're Christians. You hear it a lot. And that they, it's almost like they're saying, you need to change your Bible because I'm not going to change. You know, I'm going to do this. And now the Bible doesn't forbid it. I have a new theology about that. You hear this all the time, right? Read it everywhere. Oh, no, that's a, that's a wrong interpretation. I have a scholar who's like an erudite scholar somewhere, and he says it's this way. And therefore, now, all the centuries of what God's people have said about what the Bible says aren't true anymore. And now we have the, the truth, and it's time for us to change our Bibles. Or it's, it's like saying to Jesus, you need to change, Jesus, because I'm not going to change. How foolish. The God of the universe is uh, not going to change. The word of God is not going to change, right? It shouldn't change. It doesn't change. We need to change. See what happens? Why do people say God needs to change? The Bible needs to change because I'm not going to change. Because they're desperate and they need what? An epiphany of grace. They need to understand God can change the darkest sinner. Transform you from the sin that you continually, repeatedly commit. God can turn your life around. He can change you. What do you need? You need, a, you need an awakening and a dawning of God's giftedness. To know how he gives and specifically how this works is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only taking ungodliness out of our life and taking worldliness out of our life, but putting godliness in, in the, into our life, that's the next thing. And I think that's number three. Number one, when the grace of God dawns on you, it delivers you from sin. Number two, when the grace of God dawns on you, it trains you to renounce ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's verse 12, the first part. Second part of verse 12, when the grace of God dawns on you, it will empower you to live a godly life. And, and get this, in an ungodly age, isn't it neat that's in there? Don't you just feel that all around? Don't you feel like you're in a vice grip of worldliness now? Do you feel that way? I do. Every day, it seemed like. I feel like I live where there's so much pressure around me to deny the Lord. So much pressure around me to kind of like change the message a little bit. So much pressure about, like, around me. In this ungodly age, the scriptures say to live self-controlled, upright. That means righteous, godly lives. Lives like God in this present age. Godliness is possible in an ungodly age. And listen, the contrast of a godly life and an ungodly life, that's a part of the program. So, so I want to lose you here, but I understand the whole missional idea. And we have like lots of missionary people here. So if I misspoke, they would fix that really quick. But I understand missional. I understand you go to a culture and you don't impose your culture on that other culture and that you're sensitive about that culture, that contextualization thing, right? I get that. I believe in that. But like, let's be honest. I kind of think sometimes what we call missional and contextualizing is really just like going over and joining people in their sin. And we wonder why they don't get saved because, because they never saw the beautiful contrast of a godly life, right? I mean, if he's a drunk and I go get drunk with him, how am I helping that guy, right? If, I, if there's no contrast in my life, is there godliness and right? I should be getting some amens here. Do, are there any Baptists left in the house? You know what I'm saying? I was like, it, it, like think about that. Um, what, what, how refreshing is it when you find, I, I got a niece I love. She's a good girl. 
And she got a little bit older. She didn't old, but she got a little bit older and she never met this, met, met the right guy. And she's a good girl. I know her. I know her love for the Lord. I know her love for her daddy and her mom. I know that she's tried to live for the Lord. And yet she'd get a little bit older and, and, and she's a lovely girl. There was no fellow that came for her, you know? And, and I, was, I was just thinking about that when one day, you know how you watch Facebook and up pops this kid. And I'm like, who is that dude? Like, where did they get him? Who would be this niece of mine? You know, she should have a nice boy. She's a good girl. Who is that guy anyway? You know, that's how you feel when you're an uncle. You're like, who is this loser coming, hanging around my niece, you know? But then when I met him, I'm like, wow, this guy's a good guy. He loves the Lord. He really loves the Lord. He serves the Lord. He's a missionary. He's a, he, he's a holy life. He, 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 um, he, he, he's a, he loves books. He's got to be a good guy. Um, I read his stuff. I'm like, my, where did this guy come from? I don't even know make kids like this anymore. How did that happen? This is how that happened. Because in this sad, broken world, there are still young men out there. There aren't many of them, but there are still a few young men out there that have stepped away from the filthy stream that just drags young men down into the world. And they said, no, I'm going to live a godly life. I'm going to live a pure life. I'm going to resist my downward inclinations. I'm going to have the Holy Spirit live in my life. I'm going to live for the Lord, even if nobody else around me lives for the Lord. You can live a godly life in an ungodly age. This is the promise of the Bible, but you need a grace awakening. You need an epiphany of grace. You need a dawning of God's grace, meaning you need to have over and over again in your heart a belief. Oh, wait a minute. God will give me the gifts I need to obey his law. God will give me the gifts I need to keep his law. And then you have number four, when grace of God dawns on you, you'll long for his full glory to appear. This is just gorgeous. And look in verse 12, I'm sorry, in verse 13, waiting, or, or like this is training us, as I think still the training is in effect here, right? Training, training us to wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You ever have somebody tell you that Jesus isn't God and they believe the Bible, but they say Jesus isn't God, but I believe the Bible? That's kind of weird, right? Take him to John 1, have him read that. Take him to Colossians 1, have him read that. Take him to Hebrews 1, have him read that. Take him to Revelation 1, scare the bee jabbers out of them. Have him read Revelation 1. Then take him here where it says, this is about Jesus, right? Are you, you're, you're reading the same Bible I'm reading? For the great, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's our great God and deliverer. This is who Jesus is. He's God. He's the one true God of the whole world, of everyone in the world that gets saved. Gets saved through Jesus Christ, who is God. All right, this is the message. And, 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 but it says, when we, we have an awakening of grace or when we have a dawning of grace, when we see how great God is, then it makes us long for him to reveal his full glory when he appears. We're the people who don't live just for this world, but we're always going, but you know what? It, what is it Pastor Leo has taught you? What am I thinking right now? A lot of things you're saying, you're gonna know this as soon as I say, we're not glorified yet. Everybody says he taught you that, right? He's sick today, so like we're helping out. We're not glorified yet. What's that mean? We're looking forward. This, isn't, this thing isn't over yet. Jesus is going to come back someday. I know you got a theory about how your sin isn't sin anymore. But like oh, one thing you might want to remember, Jesus is going to come back someday. You can tell him. Right? What's he going to say? I, I already spoke you my word. My word was plain and clear. I gave you my Holy Spirit. I gave you my, I died on the cross for you. I gave you my spirit. You could live a godly life. I'm not going to change. I made it possible for you to change. He's coming back. You got to take that argument in the face of Jesus someday. When Jesus comes back, think of two things. 
Judgment, reward, right? Think of judgment, reward. I believe that the believer's judgment is really a reward judgment. I believe that. But, but nonetheless, the Bible says there is no condemnation, no judgment to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no damnation that we need to fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when, when Jesus comes back for us, come on, I can't wait for you to come back. Then I get to be with you. I believed in you, but I never saw you, but now I see you. And all the things that were going on in the world, people that were blaspheming you, mocking you, and cursing you. But now they have to answer to you. And, and you are, to, to every eye will behold you, every knee, every knee will bow. This is what Paul is telling Titus. Go to Crete. It's really an ungodly place. And tell them about the grace of God. And then when you do that, they're going to start longing. They're going to have a longing for the full appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ, for him to come back. Did you listen to the choir song today? I was having a really sad day on Wednesday. I had heard some news about some people that I love that were walking away from the Lord and I was hurting for their parents and it, and it wouldn't leave me all day to just hurt all day. And then I came to choir practice, which if you can sing, you should come to choir practice because it's like quite an experience here. And this was the song. There's a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part yet drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me, the hope of heaven. My highest calling and my deepest joy to make his will my home. There's a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the savior there through present sufferings and future fear he whispers courage in my ear, for I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. And then there's this. There's a hope that stands the test of time that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of the day divine when I behold his face, when sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied. Then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, and I am truly home. I know that we're living in an unfriendly world. I know that we're tempted to sin and break God's law. I know that all around us all the time is that pressure and temptation to wander away from the Lord. But someday he's coming back and we're gonna see his face. And he says, until then, I'm gonna give you my grace, my gifts, I'll pour out my gifts on you to help you live a godly life and not to live an ungodly life and, and to be saved and to long for my return. And number five, when grace dawns on you, you'll have a strong desire to do God's work to do good works and God's work. You see it right there, verse 14, uh, who gave himself for us, and this is reference obviously to the cross and his death on the cross, who gave himself for us to redeem us, that's the bias out of slavery, right? From all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And these people are zealous for good. This is a little zealous for good works, a little profile of the kind of person who's been touched by grace. They're his own possession. Isn't that sweet? That's my boy. They're redeemed from slavery to sin and Satan. They love the law of God. They deliver from lawlessness. They're not lawless. They love the law of God. Rightly understood, right? They're growing in purity. They're zealous for good works. They're gifted and they're eager to serve. And for the church to be strong and for this church to be uh, sound, the teaching and the talk in a church have to be strong and sound. And this is where he goes in verse 15. 
So Paul says to Timothy, these things I just told you, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Don't ever let anybody intimidate you from saying these things are true. You can renounce ungodliness and worldliness. You can live a godly, pure life. You can keep the law of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be delivered from your sin. You can long for the coming of Christ. These things you can do in an ungodly world. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Men and women of the church, say this. Teachers and moms and dads, say this stuff. Teach this stuff. Remind one another. This is the power. This, is a, this will help other people have a dawning of the grace of God. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. I'm writing a book. I, I think you know that. I finished it this week. Uh, it's called Finding Bittersweet. It's really the story of how we came to you. And, 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 and yet it, was, um, it started out really scary because I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. And, and there were bad things being said about me. And, and uh, Lois and I would lay in bed at night. And I'm not a worrier, but I would just worry. And I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. And I would just think, is this it? Is this I don't get to be a pastor anymore? Is this how it's going to end? And, and how am I going to pay my bills? And how am I going to help my girl? And... It was just a hard thing. And started, I got my Jeep, as you know, I started driving around preaching at camps, but camps can't pay you much, you know, and they're helping kids. And so, you know, my first place, uh, a, a person that read my things was part of what was called the Liberty Cumberland Presbyterian Church down in McMinnville, Tennessee. And they said, well, will you come down here to our church and we give a little family seminar and will you preach and we'll feed you and you can stay in our house, in our basement. And I said, I'd love it. So first place I went was down into Tennessee. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna enough money down here to put, you know, to pay for my gas, but I'm just gonna follow the Lord and trust him. All the way, I'm in the car going, Lord, um, is it gonna be okay? Are you gonna, you know, give me what I need? Are you gonna meet our needs? Are we gonna be able to pay our bills? Are we gonna pay our daughters, you know, legal fees? Are we gonna, you know, we're gonna, you know, are, are, you, are you gonna help us? And I, it was a humble place that, Presbyterian Church was very sweet. We stayed with his family. It was a delightful time. Treated us really nice. When I got done, it was a Sunday, and I preached to these people, and they were very sweet, small church, and somebody pressed some bills in my hand as I went out the door. They gave me a little check there. I got in my red Jeep, and I drove out of town. I was going to a camp over in Kentucky. The last place I had preached on Easter, the, the church had not given me an honorarium at all, which was okay, except I thought, I'm going to starve here. I can't even put gas in the car. Later on, they made it up. But, but you know, that's the way it was. I drive, I'm like, am I going to make it? What's going to happen to me? <laughs> I, I thought, I wonder if uh, they gave me enough money to get to the next town, you know? <laughs> and so I pulled my Jeep over the side of the road up in the mountains of Tennessee. And I get in my Bible and I look at the check and I look at the money that they gave me. That, that little church of people there gave me $800. Uh, I, got, I drove through the mountains, was happy. I thought, well, God, thank you for that. You know, that'll help this week. I got to the camp that I knew was a small camp in the mountains. They're going to give me $400. wasn't a lot of money. I'm like, well, I opened up my computer and a friend had sent me $400. And it happened all, the, uh, all summer long, all fall long. Even before you guys called me, I knew I had a job. Every time, God just kept giving whatever I needed. Even the, and you know, that story's still, still going on. Here's the thing what we need is whenever we doubt and things get dark, we need to go, God, I know you're good. I know you're a giver. I know your grace, your grace is so great that you'll give me what I need, whether it's, you know, help when I'm sick, money when I need it, 
help with my temptations. So maybe Cohen will come and maybe. <laughs> He'll visit us sometime. And I want to say to him, hey, Cohen, whenever you feel sad, I just want you to think about Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, buddy, all your life, because he's good. And he'll give you what you need. Amen. Let's pray together. And I want to sing a beautiful gospel song. Eddie, did you want to say he is good all the time? Let's just do that right. He's good. All the time. All right, good. Stand up and we'll pray together. Lord, I pray for a fresh dawning of your grace on our hearts today. For whatever it is that troubles us when we lie in our beds at night and we're discouraged about ourselves or the things that worry us or the temptations that trouble us or the failures that we have, that you would just help us to see an epiphany of of your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna end with a song of epiphany of what, it's probably, it's my story.